You're listening to the best of the day. I say you, you the best. Halford and Bruff. Let's get into it. Laddie, let's tell everybody what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. Oh, what happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? You missed that? You missed that? What happened? So here's the deal. Uh, Canucks Central kind of was on a heater yesterday. Satyar Shah, Dan Riccio in the afternoons, your primetime drive show home. Uh, they had a really good guest list yesterday. Got some really quality audio, uh, including some from former Vancouver Canuck, former Vancouver Canucks captain, and former Vancouver Canucks president of hockey operations, Trevor Linden. Very interesting interview there. Linden spoke... I would say candidly in what might be one of the first times since being dismissed. Sorry, amicably departing the organization back in 2018. Five years ago now. It's been that long. So Sat and Dan had a chance to talk to Trevor uh, about his time in the Canucks front office and then what he thinks about some of the current regime. Laddie, I will admit I did not get a chance to parse through every single clip that we had. So I'm going to lean on you and your plaid jacket quite heavily right now. Yeah, channeling my inner bruff with the shacket. It is a good shacket <laughs> with the hood. If there was a producer cam, you would all say, ooh, that's a shacket. Uh, oh, I have to bring the drip after the discussion yesterday. It is so. quite drippy. It Somebody's got to do it. There. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> walk me through some of this audio. just has to be brief, and then we'll get our reactions on the other side. Yeah, you want me to play it as well? We can listen to a little I bit of the I would love to play sure, some of yeah. the audio. I can, I can just talk about it too, but uh, I'll, I'll play some as well. Uh, first off, he was talking about the, the whole Bruce Boudreaux situation. Obviously, people want to know his take on how it was handled and how the organization kind of looks after it's all said and done. And here's what Lyndon had to say. I don't think the team did themselves any favors with how that coaching situation played out. I, you know, it's hard to recall a, another situation in any sport that, that played out like that. So it's definitely was unfortunate. I don't think it reflected well on the organization and, and, you know, it's not, but and that's and that reflects and that's hard for the players too. I mean, it's hard for mm-hmm. the captain of the team to stand in front of the microphone day after day and answer questions that are kind of really tough to answer. So the obvious thing here, and this was going on throughout the interview yesterday, is a lot of people wanted to know: Has enough time finally passed that Lyndon can speak and speak candidly and openly and honestly about the organization that he played for and then presided over? And then the dismissal, remember it happened in the middle of the summer. It was classified as an amicable departure. Everyone felt like there was a story there that maybe neither side was ever going to bring to light for a variety of very obvious reasons. Uh, Lyndon did go down the road yesterday of talking about uh, his vision, his thoughts, his time as the POHO, the president of Hockey Ops. Laddie, what do we have on this front? There's a couple different clips we can get to here. Uh we covered his situation with Bruce, and now he talked about his time in the front office, which is, like you said, a topic that everyone wanted to hear him talk about. And then also just his general view on you know prospects. And I guess that was people thought that was the main rift uh, when Lin- Lyndon left, was that he wanted to take a little bit more of a slower process with the prospects. So they asked him straight up about that. But let's hear the clip first about his time in the front office and why it was a difficult situation for him. It was a very difficult situation, and you can you can criticize things and how they were done. Um, having said that, there wasn't a lot to work with, and you know, when back in 2014, it was a tough spot. We had a lot of 
older players that were post apex and you know were you know it was tough to going to be tough to change things quickly and obviously two iconic hall of famers that were you know they were under contract for a few years and but you know i knew that you know if you kind of was trying to talk about just being patient and having a bit of a vision and and um and trying to put the pieces in place I mean, that's how it's always been framed, right? Lyndon was going to be the patient one that wanted a more methodical, longer paint-by-numbers-by-the-book rebuild, as much as people might have hated that word or not. And Benning wanted to go the exa- the opposite way. And that was in his messaging as he came aboard and subsequently in his moves throughout his time as general manager. There was always the next great quick fix on the horizon. There was always that deal that was going to put them over the top. There was always that move that was going to get them to where the organization wanted to go. Uh, ultimately, we found how that played out in real time. Yes, real time. And it wasn't... Uh, it got real. Here's the thing. I think with where the organization is currently, um, there's a lot of people that are standing around and waiting for Lyndon to get up, be it jumping on his own or on a ladder and dunk on everyone. Like He was the one that wanted to go on a different route, and they didn't. And now look at it. It's five years after his amicable departure... And look at where the team is. Uh, He didn't go there, per se, but it was a very clear indication that there was a philosophical divide, at the very least, about the direction he wanted to take and the direction that they went. And that's out there in the public sphere now. Very interesting. Well, let's listen to that last clip about the, the prospects and how he wanted to handle them. Like you said, he wants a little bit more of a slow, methodical approach, and that's not the direction it sounded like the Canucks wanted to go in. Everyone wants to win, and you know you've you've, but you really have to be careful with, you know, rushing, um, you know, certain situations, and and that's hard. And so, um, you know, that was you know that was the challenge for me as I kind of had a different view of how I thought we should be looking at things. And at the end of the day, you know, um, that's the way it goes. And again, we all know who he's talking about here. These are the Vertanens, the McCanns, everyone else of the world that's got fast-tracked. You could put this all the way into post-Trevor Linden with Adam Gaudet being rushed in. And then there's a realization that uh, patience for Trevor Linden was a, a virtue. It was something that it's easy to preach, harder to practice. Because patience requires the ability to say, hey, we're going to go through some short-term struggles or maybe even a little bit of a longer-term struggle to ultimately reach a goal. It's funny now because what the Canucks have finally done with building a core group of promising young players in the American Hockey League that are learning their craft this is probably a vision that he would have embraced five years ago. Pod Colson, Huglander, Aturatu, uh, Carlson, Klimovich. You've got a group of players that are in their early 20s, that are honing their craft out of the spotlight, away from the NHL life, and quite frankly, away from the toxic nature of the current group. Speaking of this current group, I want to move to another interview the Canucks Central had yesterday. This one was with Kevin Woodley. So Woodley addresses head-on the new big trade rumor in Vancouver. The old one is Bo Horvath. We moved on to the next target. We got to move on. We're moving on to Cincinnati. In this case, we're moving on to the Thatcher-Demko trade chatter. Now, uh, a little precursor to this clip. Uh, Elliot Friedman has framed this a couple of times. I believe Rick Dollywall's touched on it as well. That teams are calling 
on Demko. That there's some interest there from outside the room. So Woodley, as a vaunted and respected journalist and reporter, I went right to it. I wouldn't go too far. Okay, just walk me through this one, too. What do we got here from Woods? Well, Woodley was just as intrigued as everybody else hearing these rumors, especially coming from a guy like Friedman, and he put some clout to his, his words, yep. so that there will be some interest in Demko. And, and Woodley was just wondering if it came from Demko himself, if it was a trade request or if it was coming from the outside, and he actually saw Demko. Uh, he's still hanging around the rink, so sure. he took him aside and had a conversation and said, hey, asked him, asked him straight up, is is the reason those rumors are out there because you want out of Vancouver? And here's what he said. I don't know if I've seen this like on Twitter, or, um, but, but I know it's been said at least in a couple of spots that, that he wants out. Um, you know, and I, I, I had a chance to ask. Um, I ran into him at the rink and had a chance to ask, because like, that was sort of this, the buzz that was you know, surrounding his name appearing in rumors. And you know, my sense is that that's not the case, um, that, that that is something that seems to be coming from elsewhere, if that's true. Now, listen, I don't think you could blame him. And again, he didn't, he didn't express any frustration at all, frankly, uh, in terms of, you know, obviously this team is not where anyone expected them to be, and that can't be fun. It can't be fun to be on a losing team. Um, but but I didn't, he didn't express any of that frustration and certainly um, indicated that, you know, like there certainly hasn't been any I want out of here trade type request. Now, he could just be putting that on because he's talking to Woodley and doesn't want to make anything known that he wants to get out. But I feel like Woodley has that little bit of tr- extra trust with guys like Demko, the goalies around the league. They they wouldn't do that to Woodley. So I, I'm going to believe this take and that it's it really isn't a trade request from Demko. It's coming from the outside. It's entirely possible that he wants no part of a trade, that he wants to stay. In fact, it's probably more than likely. He could have no interest in entertaining a trade. He may have never asked even remotely close to it. Everyone that's out there saying that this is a media-driven conspiracy or that we're trying to put words in his mouth, I'll say it for you. It's very likely that Thatcher Demko has no interest in getting a trade. Problem is, that's not how this works. There's two sides to it because other teams can call on you. I will never forget, uh, in a Mark Bergevin scrum at the 2014 or 15 draft, the one where he eventually traded P.K. Subban not long after, and he uttered the sort of now infamous words in Montreal. He's like, I can't control who makes calls on our players, but I'm not interested in trading P.K. Subban. The inference was, but there's people making calls on him. And we were all kind of left to dance around the edges of it. And then when the trade was finally consummated, it became very clear that he didn't go in with the intention. Or even if he did, he had an out because there's two sides to how the trade dance works. That's all I'm trying to tell people that are all up in arms. I see texts. I see your tweets. I mute you right after, but I see them when they go through. You're all upset and all angry and think that we're trying to drive a player out of town or it's toxic Vancouver media, which I don't really consider myself. I'm more of an entertainer. Is that fair? When does yeah. the entertaining start is my question. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> media does a lot of heavy lifting there in that uh, last sentence. So. so does entertainer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you're looking at this and you're saying, what might be going on? Well, teams can call. That's one. Teams can call on anyone. Teams can call on Pedersen. Teams can call on Hughes. Think the devil's a kick the tire on, tires on Quinn Hughes? Like, we got two-thirds of the family. May as well complete the trifecta. You can call on anyone. Uh, another important thing here, Demko's contract has nary a movement clause. There's no no-trade clause. There's no no-movement clause. 
So if you're a team that's interested in acquiring him, you can put that inquiry forth knowing that nothing's going to stand in your way. Unless he chooses not to report, he's got to go everywhere because he has no no no-trade clause and no no no-movement clause. And there's a third part to this, which is important. The Canucks do not have many assets that would fetch good assets in return. Run down the list. Would you be able to trade JT Miller's contract right now and get something tangible back? What about Brock Besser? What about Connor Garland? What about Tyler Myers? All of them are not the kind of deals that you move out expecting to get stuff back. Not quite the Bo Horvat return, although maybe. I have no idea what the market would be for a goalie that is uh, at his ceiling, borderline elite, is locked up for the next three years at $5 million per, which is a very affordable ticket, and is relatively young. Demko would net you assets. Paint by numbers, pure logic, and reasoning. Oh, would he ever? And that's not a common thing for today's day and age in the NHL. A goalie to net you a lot of assets in a trade. That's he comes with cool. co- he comes with costs. That's cer- found money right there. He comes with cost certainty. He's got a proven track record behind him, and he's young, ish. He's young for a goal, young for a starting goalie in the NHL. I bring all this up because uh, Fridge touched on this yesterday. In 32 Thoughts. I want to play two separate clips. The first is him and Merrick going back and forth, and they're talking about, well, what's next for the Canucks? And this is the obvious question, because Jason and I were asking it yesterday. We got that itch, that Bo Horvat trade itch. It might be a rash. Pretty sure it's just an itch, though. And we're wondering, like, when does the rest of the major surgery happen? When do the next deals happen? When does someone else get moved along? When can we continue to see the makeover of this team and the vision that Alvin and Rutherford, and to a lesser degree, Rick Tockett, who, by the way, will be on the show today at 8.30. What vision they have for the team. So what's next? Fried starts with Shen, then moves to Demko, and then the second clip, which we'll play a little bit later on, gets into actually specific landing spots. If they were to move on from the goalie, who I remind you has a no-trade, no-no-trade, and no-no-movement clause. Uh, but let's start with Fried. This is from 32 Thoughts, talking about what moves might be next. For the Vancouver Canucks, Shen is the obvious one to me because um, yep. you know I I'm not as convinced it's going to be Tampa Bay now. There was a time I thought it was going to be Tampa. I'm not anymore. Um, but you know the one thing about Shen I would say too is if anyone I wondered they might keep after Tockett got there, it was Shen because I could see Tockett really liking Shen's game. He brings something to talk at likes, but I still think they're getting asked about him. You know, the other one to me, and this is the total wild card, is are we going to get enough runway to see Demko before the deadline? So last Friday night, Alvin says it's tough to say for sure, but they're basically hoping three weeks. So this is week one. Next week is two more weeks. Let's just say it's three weeks. He's back the 16th, the trade deadline for third. Does that give us enough runway to see Demko? I don't know, Elliot. Does it give us enough runway? Does he need runway? I suppose you need to prove that he's healthy enough to play this season because the team that's acquiring him, theoretically, would want to have him in net for a playoff run. 
Uh, Friege then ca- carried on. He went down the road of what teams might be interested. No shortage of suitors, despite the fact that February of a regular season, most teams in the NHL usually have a fairly stable goaltending situation unless they've been besieged by injury. But there's a handful of teams not just focused on this season, but this season and beyond. And that's the thing with this contract. So here now, Elliot Friedman from 32 Thoughts uh, on where Demko could land and what suitors could be involved. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're like, 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 look, when I, when I, when I look at Demko, like I was sitting there last night as I was writing, I'm, I'm going down the list. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Okay. There's three places to me that really make sense. Okay. Uh, one's Buffalo. One's Pittsburgh. And one's Los Angeles. I would say in two of those situations, Buffalo, you know, I mean, do they, does, like, I think Buffalo obviously wants to get in, but they're not trying to win the Stanley Cup this year, or at least thinking they're going to win the Stanley Cup this year. So that's a little different. Mm-hmm. But if you're Los Angeles and you're Pittsburgh, can you trade for a guy you're not sure is going to be able to help you this season? Merrick then jumped in and threw Columbus on the pile as well which I thought was interesting. Uh, Columbus is none too happy with their goaltending right now. They're making a run for it? <laughs> I think it would be more about, I mean, there there would be one where you bring Demko in, there's no pressure to play this year. But years down the road, two, three, and four of the contract, yeah, absolutely. And their goaltending's been the pits this year. It's been quite awful. bad. Yeah. Not the worst, but quite all. I think Corpus Allo's sort of salvaged it in the last month or so, but not looking good for the, the future there. So a lot of other takeaways from this, and Frege in the 32 Thoughts article astutely points out, quite obvious, that the Canucks have identified their core. The core now, guys, by the way, Pedersen, Hughes, Miller, and I guess Kuzmenko is he's in that conversation now. I realize that the contract was of the bridge variety and only of two years, but again, the impression that we all got, and prove me wrong, tell me if I'm wrong here, is that Milstein, Alvin, and Kuzmenko all kind of agreed that this is just adding a couple years so that they could sign a larger extension, presumably with Vancouver, when the contract's up. Unless it goes completely pear-shaped and they trade him. That must be news and and, and magic to your ears, Andy, that Kuzmenko's going to be a part of this thing. I light up every time I think about it. (laughs) So when the question is, if that's the core, who else can go and who might go next? Look at the obvious candidates. Shen, I think, if you can keep him healthy and prevent him from being injured over the next month, he's the ideal wait till the end and drive up the price guy. No uh, risk of that, though. He only plays the most physical style that we've ever and seen. And he fights a lot but, uh, Yeah, by, totally the, by, the, by the modern day. By the way, did you see the Leafs-Bruins game last night? And did you see the fight between Wayne Simmons and A.J. Greer? I did not. Simmons caught Greer. Almost flush at the beginning of the fight. And I'm pretty sure if Greer wasn't out on his feet, he was close. And then he's standing trying to regain some semblance of balance. And then Simmons is just wailing on him. As you know, in those fights where you keep a guy at arm's distance and then you turn your head away to not get punched. Like that's what Greer was doing. There's a couple of close-ups where I'm like, that doesn't look good. Just hanging on for for dear life. Greer Greer went into concussion protocol right after the fight. And I mention this only because, I don't know if you guys saw it on the weekend, but former Vancouver Canucks Zach McEwen 
Uh, he had he underwent surgery fractured on a fractured jaw. jaw. He yeah. fractured his jaw in a fight with Marcus Foligno on Thursday. Like, pretty serious injury. He's out for five to six weeks. So as we go into All-Star break and everyone's looking for talking points and guys are going to be asked about things, I do wonder, just for you guys especially, just keep an eye on this one from a distance, this story. It's kind of percolating. Because I know fighting is inherently dangerous, and I know guys getting hurt in them is nothing new. But when it's been decreased to the amount and volume that it has, and two guys have suffered pretty serious injuries Almost in the... Are you, did you just see the fight? I just I watched the look side your, angle. Yeah, the side angle's bad. My God. He's getting wailed on. How did he wailed stay on, on his feet? Yeah, I don't know. I got the freeze frame up right now on the computer. The visual is... Andy's now looking at it as well. This is actually probably decent live radio because a lot of people are like, I need to watch this now. We can link it out. You know what? Someone tweeted from the, either the 650 account yeah. or their personal account. Yeah, it's maybe, maybe with a disclaimer. That's, that's, uh, that's brutal. <laughs> so he's getting, he's getting wailed on. Yeah. And I just, I just wonder if it's going to be a talking point moving forward because the fights are so erratic and so spontaneous right now that they don't happen often enough. But so that's why I'm saying like you get two fights in the span of five or six days. One guy's got a fractured jaw that's wired shut and the other guy's going right to concussion protocol. And these uh, injuries were 100% because of the fights. McEwen, after he fought Felino left and then Greer... Like, they had to help him, and he was gone. He was right off the ice. So, something to pay attention to uh, as we move forward. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the best of the day. I say you the best. The best. Halford and Bruff. To the phone lines we go. Happy to have our next guest on the program from Daily Faceoff. It is Frank Saravalli here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I am good. I am uh, staring at the beach here in South Florida for All-Star Weekend and uh, thankfully in air conditioning because this body was not built for this kind of <laughs> I was going to say, having been to Florida numerous times and having uh, experienced the humidity, it's a sweaty time in yeah, Florida. Look, I'm not complaining by any stretch of the imagination. It's just... I don't know that I packed enough clothes is the problem. (laughs) Frank, we talked about Florida prior to your hit here because the entire hockey world is going to congregate in all the media. And uh, thank God for the Vancouver Canucks and the New York Islanders because not only did they give everyone something to discuss going in to this weekend, but there's also that hope, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that this may sort of loosen up or shake loose the trade tree. Once you get that first deal out of the way, sometimes there is a domino effect. Yeah, I just don't buy it in this case. And I think a big reason for that is this deal was sort of unique in the timing of it, that the Islanders were pushing the envelope because they want to get back in the race. They've got some ground to make up, and each passing game or day um, was less of an opportunity to do so. So from their perspective, quite clearly, they put the player on the table that the Canucks were most interested in in Ratu. And then after that, um, for the Canucks perspective, a lot of people have asked, why, you know, why now? Why pull the trigger when you could maybe wait, play this out a bit and potentially get more? I think there was a real desire on the Canucks end to be in a spot where they could get a fresh start on the other side of the bye week and the break. Mm -hmm. 
to turn down the noise in what's been an incredibly dramatic season, as we've all chronicled, and start fresh so much as you can, knowing that there's going to be other players on your team that are traded. So I'd like to think that it would open the floodgates. I just don't think when you look at the contenders and teams that are involved uh, to make some of these moves, that given the standings, anyone's really super antsy to do so. Well, I just wonder, maybe even just because it's from a Canucks perspective, there does seem to be the sense of, okay, great, the trade happened, what comes next? Because, look, I mean, we just talked about this prior to having you on. Since Rick Tockett's come aboard, uh, Ilya McKay has been shut down for the year with the torn ACL. Nice work on that scoop, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, and then... Uh, they lost the player to waivers, Lane Peterson, and then Bo Horvat got traded. So in the span of three games as head coach, three fairly major roster transactions on behalf of the Vancouver Canucks. And there is that sense of what comes next. I think it's also very intriguing, Frank, because when Jim Rutherford said this is going to require major surgery, it feels like the scalpels are out and there might be other procedures to follow. Are you? Is that a medical reference? That was a medical reference, yes. Oh, so what do you got? Give me, give me the deets. Give me the scoop. Where do you think the Canucks go from here, and would they do it in short order? Because another part of this is that you want to give Rick Tockett an opportunity to work with the group that he might have moving forward and not have a bunch of rumors swirling around when he's trying to, you know, teach them how to kill penalties and play with structure and play defense. Yeah, and, and get a string of 10 straight practices if that was only possible. Yes. Um, I, you threw me through a loop there because I thought you were hinting at someone else needing surgery and not an actual team surgery. It was metaphorical. Uh, Roster-wise. Um, I think the most interesting part of the last two weeks in Canuckland is the fact that they've, instead of creating salary cap flexibility, they've essentially added $10 million in wingers with the deal for Kuzmenko and now Anthony Beauvillier. So they're in a spot where... Instead of creating that cap flexibility, you've kind of only added to it right now. Uh, I know subtracting Bo is is part of the math equation too, but um, what's next is the surgery, you mentioned scalpel, to begin cutting out some of those contracts that um, they need to in order to make that happen. So Brock Besser, you're on the clock. Come on down. Um, I believe... You know, all signs point to Brock being next. Uh, how they then shape that transaction, whether it's retaining, whether it's taking on an expiring larger contract coming back the other way or something that might not be quite as palatable in the short term. Uh, there's lots of options to do it. And if they get to the right number, and I'm not saying they should retain, I, I think the Canucks, from a pure a pure financial and uh, cap standpoint are better off taking a lesser asset in return than taking on something back or retaining. Um, That would seem to be the play. I mean, Connor Garland, people have talked about, I think the extra year of term probably, it makes it a little bit more difficult. And also maybe some of the track record that, you know, he had success under Rick Tockett, and, and that was where he first got his shot in the NHL was playing under him. I wonder if there's any sort of, you know, perspective change on thinking about Connor Garland. 
Uh, with regards to Besser, let's zero in on that for a sec because the name has been out there for a while. Obviously, there was the news, oh, feels like a long time ago, but it was just over a month ago where the agent was granted permission to go seek a trade. Although Patrick Alvin has never confirmed that publicly. I just throw that out there. Uh, it sounds like New Jersey is a logical landing spot because they're looking for a top six, wing, top six winger that can score goals. Would Vegas enter the chat or the equation here because of the news on Mark Stone? Potentially, but I think they'd probably be trying to swing bigger. And then the factor with Stone that comes into play with Besser is they'd need an expiring contract, not someone with two more years. Like They still need to be cap compliant next year, and there are no rabbits out of their hat that they can pull, um, given that Stone, at least according to their release, is going to make a full recovery. The big question is, when is that? Is that sometime during the playoffs? Is it next season? Who knows? But the name that jumps out to me for Vegas and Stone is immediately Patrick Kane. Right winger, hmm. you know, can afford the cap hit uh, almost uh, with that LTIR space, nine and a quarter from Stone. Kane is at ten and a half. If you have Chicago retain half, which they're more than willing to do, then all of a sudden you'd have an ability if you're Vegas to also add on the back end, which is where things get really interesting. Um so Vegas, they've got some money to play with. Uh, I just don't necessarily it, see it being better. Uh, I, I want to circle back to Horvat for a sec because we're talking about all these other moves that are out there. Um, was a price set here, or is this just a bit of a trade that exists in a vacuum because it was rather unique? Uh, I ask this because if you're talking about the likes of Patrick Kane being moved, you've got to look and say, well, the return on Horvat was what it was. And I know you guys even at Daily Face have had the conversation if you thought that the Canucks got enough in return for Horvat. So I guess one the question is, was the market set, was the pricing set? And two, what conclusions did you guys come to about whether the Canucks got enough for Horvat or not? I guess it depends on who you trust in terms of talent evaluation. I don't know. I'm not a prospects or draft expert, and I would never pretend to be one. I can't make a judgment on Atu Ratu, and I you know, certainly am not going to knock or question the scouting bones that Patrick Alvine has made in this business, uh, talent evaluators that I trust have pegged the return at Beauvillier and Ratu at a ceiling of essentially two third-line players. And if you're getting two third-line players and a first-round pick, depending on where it is, even in a good draft, is that enough for a player who's had a magical season like Bo Horvat has had? To me, probably not, but there's still so much to be determined. Like, is their ceiling higher than that? Um, how does all that work out? And so I, I don't have an answer. Um, I guess my thing is, I w you know, the Canucks were in a spot where when you look at what they were asking for in an NHL-ready player and a close-to-NHL-ready player, is their mantra, their line of thinking of retool instead of rebuild, did that hamstring how they approach this trade? Mm. That's, I think, the bigger takeaway and question instead of did they get enough? And there's no guarantee, we've talked about this, there's no guarantee on draft picks when you trade for them in futures. But what it does is it turns the temperature down on – the need to be right immediately. Right. 
that you can't, when you're retooling, you can't miss. Like if Ratu is a miss and Beauvillier is, is just what he is, then this is a miss and, and it's going to set you back further. Um, but we don't know yet. And that's the true answer. And, and as far as setting the market, I don't believe this has an impact on anyone except for Ryan O'Reilly, right. um, who's four years older, also a center, maybe changes how the St. Louis Blues look at his the package that they might get in return for him. But teams might also say, look, this was probably a play in which the Islanders are very likely to re-sign Horvat. In fact, I'd be surprised if a deal isn't already done, that they're in a spot where maybe that changes the complexion of it too. Okay, let's focus on that. That was the next question I wanted to ask you was about uh, the extension because uh, Lou Lamorello said upon the announcement of the deal that they didn't have any conversations. They weren't granted permission to talk with the Horvat camp about an extension, but Lou made it very clear that they wanted to re-sign him. Uh, what's the general sense there? Have you gotten any more information in the subsequent days about where things are at with regards to Bo Horvat signing an extension with the Islanders? Yeah, I, I think they're well down the track. Um, I was told from someone who has direct knowledge of Lou Lamorello's thinking, which is pretty rare. And I wish I talked to this person more often. Uh, they said that Lou Lamorello was not pulling the trigger on this deal unless he knew that he was going to be re-signing Bo Horvath, Okay. that he wasn't willing to give up, uh, those assets in order to do it. And so we just know, you know, I, there's a reason I put instead of buyers or sellers, uh, that the Islanders are in a only God and Lou knows category that he announces deals when he's darn good and ready to do so. So whether it's signing a guy in July and waiting until September to announce it, I don't really have any doubt or question in my mind that Bo Horvat's going to be an Islander for a long time. So should we should essentially put to bed the notion that the Islanders could flip Horvat if they, let's say, hypothetically fall completely out of this and go into a tailspin. Horvat's going to sign an extension with the Islanders, and that talk is just mindless chatter? That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, the, everyone points to Thomas Vanek, but it was a different regime. And two... We know that Lou Amarillo is a believer in this team, that it, he doubled down on the roster in the summer by not really making significant changes to an older team that has lots of term locked up to it and now is essentially tripling down. So I don't know why we would believe anything other than that. We're speaking to Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here in the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. You mentioned Ryan O'Reilly there. Intriguing figure for me, if only because in Vancouver we saw an awful lot of him, including in the bubble in that series where he played brilliantly at times, and that was a year after he won the Conn Smythe, of course. But that was a few years ago. The Blues have not had a good year whatsoever. It's been pretty tumultuous, all things considered. Um, what's the current temperature of O'Reilly in St. Louis? Is it a foregone conclusion that he's going to move? Will they try and circle back like the Canucks did one last time to try and get a deal it, done, or will he be somewhere else at the deadline? Did the Canucks try and circle back? I don't have any evidence that they did. No final circle um, back, eh? I don't think so. I think that this, you know, the fact that Pat Morris was in Vancouver and they met and didn't talk about Bo. Um, and frankly, hadn't, I don't believe, talked about Bo in a while, maybe since November. I don't think they ever did circle back. So uh, take that for what it's worth. No, I'm, um, I'm glad you provided a little bit of clarity on that because we had conflicting reports locally. One that suggested that there was a meeting between Morris and the Canucks 
And then uh, Alvin saying that he did meet with them. I guess the gray area there is what did you? Well, he, meet no, about? he did meet with them. What but did you I, meet I about? They right? were not speaking about Bo. I don't think. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. Okay, so back to the O'Reilly thing. Yeah. So I I don't think there's a lot. Like, I haven't gotten any sense from anyone that I've talked to that they are making progress on what an extension might look like. I think the Blues are ready to cut the cord. Um, O'Reilly's been an incredible pickup for them. I think they view him as, and and frankly, some other players on their team, Barbashev uh, and Nolachari, who's also getting some attention as well. I mentioned Nico Mikola and have a story about him today on Daily Faceoff. Vladimir Tarasenko. They're viewing all these guys as a collection of assets, which they can then take and either use for futures or more likely to then flip and, and improve their team in the short term to take advantage of this next sort of cycle that's being led by Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo and, and Tori Krug and, and those guys. So um, that's their thought process. I think they're getting antsy. I think Doug Armstrong would like to make changes now rather than wait. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a Blues trade materialize here in the next week or 10 days for one of those players that I just mentioned, if not more, because I think they're ready to roll. I think they've seen enough to know that this team isn't good enough to compete this year, and they're ready to look toward the future. We're speaking to Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. K. Frank, I intentionally left this for last. We've got about five or six minutes here before we go to break. And, and the one name in Vancouver that we've talked a lot about over the last 24 hours, uh, piggybacking off reports from Elliot Friedman, among those included, the future of Thatcher Demko. And uh, there was a time where Demko was always listed in the big three of the Canucks core. It was Demko, Pedersen, Hughes, goalie, defenseman, forward. Uh, you know, makes sense. Now we're getting reports that there might be something to him at the very least, having uh, teams call in on his availability, which I guess makes sense from the se- from the factor of he could return not just one asset, but maybe multiple assets, given what he brings to the table. What do you know? What have you heard about interest in Thatcher Demko on the trade market? So Thatcher Demko is not going to be on my trade targets board on Friday okay. uh, when I release the next edition. And one, he's still injured, and I think everyone wants to see what he looks like on the other side of that injury. Two, I don't have any evidence that even if the Canucks have been receiving calls and inquiring about Thatcher Demko, that they're actually considering them or something's been presented that really makes them think. Uh, Maybe you have your sort of general tire kickers. Um, I do think that there has been some, I don't want to, I don't know if you want to call it frustration, but some friction potentially um, in terms of, I don't know if it's necessarily around the injury or what and how it's been managed, but I think it's one of those situations where, you know, Thatcher Demko has really bumped up against the limit in terms of what his body could handle in this last calendar year. Okay. And I think part of that is just natural, right? That there is that, you know, frustration that comes with an injury like this. Um, And so I think that's kind of been lingering out there and that may be where some of the chatter is coming from, but I don't, I don't have any evidence right now to say that the Canucks would seriously consider moving him. Are they slamming the phone down on 
on any call that's coming in outside of Pedersen and maybe Hughes? Probably not. So you have to allow for the possibility, and that's not me hedging, but I would say right now I think there's more smoke than there is fire. Yeah, I mean, we tried to frame this earlier in the show that this is the time of the year where you can accept calls on virtually anyone because you're open to all ideas and you listen to everything, even if you only listen well, to it. But especially where the Canucks are at. like well, you, you'd, have, you'd be dumb not to. And that's part of what you get when your president of Hockey Ops goes out and says that this roster and this team needs major surgery. There, that's going to draw the attention of the rest of the NHL. I mean, I think you probably remember as well as anyone that prior to trading PK Subban, Mark Bergeron kind of infamously said, I can't control who calls me about what players. And it framed the, the idea that ah, there might've already been a trade framework in place. It's just, you didn't necessarily make the call, but you took the call. And I think that's a big part of all of this. Yeah. I just, I don't think the Canucks are anywhere down the track on it. And I also think, um, the part of the hangup is the, the return that you get for goalies based on the way the market has been set. It's such a fickle position by nature and Demko has really struggled this year and he had the injury. How much did that impact his play? Like, I, I just don't know that they're in a window right now to, to hit a grand slam home run and get the return that would really make you excited for it. If there was a time to do it, it would have been last summer coming off of, you know, an unbelievable season or something right. like that to then pull the trigger when his value, the value is at its highest. It's just, I don't think it's there right now. I don't. Joining us now, uh, current head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, Rick Tockett, here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Uh, we've been talking a lot about what a whirlwind it's been since you came aboard with the Canucks, you've had three games in charge, not a ton of practice time. You've also had Ilya Mikheyev lost to a season-ending torn ACL. You lost the player on waivers, and then your captain and leading goal scorer were traded. So my first question is, have you had a chance to actually sit back and take this all in and evaluate things, or has it been too much of a whirlwind? That's all that's happened? That's it. Jeez, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, you know what? I, I'll be honest. With you, the first couple of days, it wasn't. Well, I wouldn't say it's overwhelming. But a lot of things were thrown your way, um, but I feel a lot more. I feel a lot better. Uh, the last three, four days, um, I had about three days with the coaches after the game on Friday. Um, we, we spent about three days in the office all day, uh, three days in a row, and we got a lot of work done before everybody took off. So I feel a lot more comfortable. Than I did. I, I started start of the week. So. Um, yeah, my approach is, you know, there's certain things I want to change. Um, it's not an overhaul, but there's certain things I want to change. But you got to be careful. You can't change everything at once. So we're just kind of chipping away. Like I told the players, you know, take a little bite of the elephant every day and, uh, you know, see where we go. Uh, if you had to put a list together, which I'm sure you have, and you can't change everything at once, what would be or what is the number one thing or the first thing that you're looking to change? I'm a big mindset guy. You know, the way we play, uh, I, I like to play us a little bit faster, more north. Um, that was something uh, coming into uh, a week ago. Uh, I saw that I wanted to change. And, and then empower the, the leadership group. I got to identify that leadership group. Really empower them. Um, you know, leadership groups are very important in pro sports and, and for head coaches or coaches in general. Um, so identifying the real leaders of the team, empower them, make sure they have a voice. Because um, they're really the guys are going to spread your message. You know, they're, they're going to spread that mindset. 
the uh, the toughness, the the competitiveness, and and your practice habits. So that's my first order of business. Had a couple of meetings already. Uh, haven't had a lot of time with it yet, but uh, the time I have, uh, I've really enjoyed the, the, the you know the sessions we've had. So that's probably the big thing for me is identifying that and, and, you know, going that leadership route and really empowering these guys. Well, let's keep talking about that. And it's a very good point to bring up because symbolically part of that leadership group is gone now with Bo Horvat being traded to the Islanders and the four year captain mm. gone uh, in that press conference. Patrick Alvin mentioned two guys in particular, Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes mm. as guys that are going to be looked upon to be leaders. Uh, is that something that you've already had discussions with as it pertains to identifying that next leadership group? Absolutely. If we're going to set the bar high here in Vancouver with the Canucks, those two guys have to be involved in the leadership group. They have to, you know, every day they come in, um, they got to set the standard. Um, and I'm going to really, you know, lean on those guys. Um, I'm not sure in the past they've had a voice because, the, you know, being a, a young kid. Um, and you got to be careful, too, uh, when you have young kids. You can't throw too much responsibility on them you know you're more worried about them developing in the league so um you know those guys have been in the league you know three four years now um you know they're they're premier players in the league and i think it's important that they have a voice and they're part of this leadership group going forward uh were there past instances in your coaching career where you saw a young and i'll say and especially in the case of petterson superstar player emerging and it's because, you know, leaders often are your best players. But uh, the progression from just being the best player who is a leader to understanding those nuances and subtle things you're talking about where it's more than just being the best player. It's about having that voice. Have you seen that in your coaching past before? Maybe an example? Well, I, I'll be honest with you. The, the, you know, you have an emerging captain. He, he, he may not have the letter on his chest yet, but that leadership helped develop him, that, to help develop that. Um, I was remember being in Arizona, and uh, you know the Keith Kachucks, Jeremy Roenick, Dallas Drake, Atepo Newman, and, and we had a young Shane Doan, and we knew eventually he was going to be the captain of that franchise. Um, and he just was part. We kind of made him a part of the leadership group as a young kid, and he just learned, and you know obviously became a great captain. Um, so just because a guy doesn't have a letter on his chest, you can still groom him for that job. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, to, to have that, uh, you know, the characteristics and they learn. Um, I'm not sure you want to put a lot of pressure on a young kid um, unless you have a, a strong leadership group. You have four or five, six guys that are really, you know, incubating them and, and helping them. I remember <clears throat> in Sidney Crosby, uh, you know, the year uh, Mike Sullivan, when, I, we took, when Mike Sullivan and I was there with them, took over, mm -hmm. we acquired some really high character guys, the Nick Beninos, uh, Patrick Hornquist, Matt Cullen, like uh, Trevor Daly, and, and they, Sidney Crosby's a great captain, but when we got those guys, I mean, it just, it, it put us over the roof with leadership, just oozed out of that room, and it really helped Sid out. I mean, Sid, Sid's game took off to another level. He was the best player in the league there uh, uh, when we acquired those guys, and I think that's the sort of stuff you want to develop. You know, a, you know, a bunch of guys that are just leaders. Might not have an A or C on their chest, but they're leaders in that room. Well, on the subject of that, is there any plan to uh, have someone wear a C this season, or is it going to be a bunch of A's? Well, right now, uh, you know, the trade just happened, uh, and, you know, it's an ongoing discussion. Um, I'm going to really use my staff, obviously, uh, pick Patrick's brain, but like I said, uh, you know, Pat, uh, Petey will be in the leadership group. Uh, Quinn Hughes will be in the leadership group. 
you know, obviously JT Miller is a, is a leader in that room. Uh, you know, we, we got a bunch of guys, Shenner, you know, OEL. So, um, you know, those two guys will get a letter of how I'm going to do it. Uh, you know, I haven't really thought of it too much other than the fact that I'm going to try to empower a, 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 a really strong leadership group, and it's going to be multiple, multiple guys uh, in that leadership room. We're speaking to Canucks head coach Rick Tockett here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. I mentioned Halford and Bruff. Rick, usually there's another guy here with me, Jason Bruff, but he's ill today. But I got to <laughs> ask you, he's talked at length about this team's penalty kill, not just this season, but over the last two seasons, and how much of a problem yeah. it's been and how historically bad it's been. I mean, we're talking about since the days that it first got tracked, this is at or near the bottom of those records. Um, I know it's a big picture question, but uh, what do you do to fix a penalty kill that's this bad? Well, there's philosophies to it. You know, that's one thing that, um, you know, in Arizona, we had really good penalty kills there. And, um, and that's something I really take pride in. Uh, so this is obviously a category that we really got to tackle. Um, you know, I'm just, I just got here. So evaluating, um, you know, so there's, there's some philosophy changes that I want to do, but, you know, I have to see if, you know, if it's personnel, I mean, do we right, have right. to go get, do we have, well, first of all, do we have to go get some penalty killers? Do we have to, do we have them in, in the organization where we can develop them better? Uh, those are the questions I'm doing right now. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure you can have your best players penalty kill every night. Um, I'm not saying they can't. But, uh, you know, when you, when you start having your best players penalty kill, power play, and five on five, and they start playing up to 23, 24 minutes, I'm not sure that's a recipe to win. Um, that's just my philosophy and for penalty kill. So we have to develop some guys. We have to get some guys there that maybe have penalty killed in the past that have not penalty till, killed. Okay. And, um, you know, it's like an evolving thing. Uh, you know, that's why I brought Adam Foote here and Sergey Gauntier. They're very good at, at that uh, category, too, or that, uh, you know, the PK. So we got to develop, we got to teach, and uh, you know that starts with practice and video, and then we'll see where we go from there. Or do we have to go acquire a couple of penalty kills? That's really the question. But right now, I want to value it and see if we have some guys that can penalty kill for us. Yeah, that's an interesting point because we had um, Chris Higgins, former Canuck in studio, a few years ago. Yeah. We were talking about that exact thing, and he pointed out, he's like, you know, you can learn and you can practice and you can get the discipline of being a penalty killer for sure. But he kind of hedged more towards. It's more about the personnel. Like you have to have the guys that know how to do it and are inherently or intrinsically good at it. And I thought that was interesting because it's not just something a throwaway. Well, you know, get out there on the kill and work hard and flip pucks in. It's it's a skill and it's something that some guys have and some guys don't. And that's where I guess what you're yeah. alluding to here that this could, at the end of the day, be a personnel thing, not necessarily a coaching and teaching thing. Well, you know, I think as a coach, you have to exhaust all you have to teach it. And I think that's the first process. And then you obviously go to the second, you know, if can these guys do it or do we have to get it? So it's the chicken and the egg. I understand that. But, yeah, PK is details, a lot of details. It's, it's, it's be, when to be aggressive, when not to be. It's, it's you know, it's the structure. You know, if, if, if you're going into a wedge, everybody's got to know, you know, in these scenarios where you're supposed to go. And then it's instinct. You know, a lot of it's instinct, and instinct in hockey is hockey IQ. You know, the the top players or the very good hockey IQ guys are instinctual. You know, mm -hmm. they know exactly. They've replayed these scenarios in their head. You know, their mental reps as right. much as physical. So that's PK. You know, um, and uh, that's something that you know I want the Canucks organization, like even the organization, all of us to, to be take pride in it. Like you know, we want to be a, a obviously every team wants to be a good penalty kill team, but it's a 
it can change the momentum of a game, you know. Um, and and and, and, you, and the percentages obviously you want great percentages, but to me it's the timing. You know, it's a you're up three to two with six minutes left, and you get a, you know you got to kill a penalty. That's the one you really want to kill. So mm-hmm. the timing of the penalty kill is huge as much as the percentages. Uh, I know you've talked a lot about uh, playing predictable hockey, and you've mentioned at the beginning it's called playing fast hockey. Is what you just said part of that? That maybe the goal is to have guys thinking about what to do less and more doing it and reacting in a, in a quicker fashion. Will that let you guys play more predictable and quicker hockey? Yeah, that, that starts when you walk in the rink. You know, you yeah. have breakfast. You're, you're thinking right away, you know, what, what is Canuck hockey? We're going to play fast. You know, we want to know, you know, listen, you, you always want to give players creativity. I mean, that's, that's the whole game. You want creative players, but you also want five-man units out there knowing exactly you know, where the puck is, where I'm supposed to be. Right. Um, you know, an average skater, if he has a good, very good hockey IQ and knows, you know, uh, you know, knows where the puck is going, can look fast. I mean, I'll be honest, I wasn't the greatest skater, but I took pride in knowing, you know, I was going to be first on the forecheck because I knew exactly where the puck was going. And then you look fast. So it's no different than our team. Um, you know, I feel the team likes to regroup a lot. It likes to take the puck back a lot. And I think it's a recipe for disaster if you, if you continue to do that. Um, you know, you look at the Colorado Avalanche, you know, it's a, it's a copycat league. Every, you know, you look at the former Stanley Cup champs and go, what, what are they doing? Well, they play fast hockey. Obviously, they got some great players there. They're, they're you know, an unbelievable you know, team on paper, but they play really well. But their philosophy, it's, it's, you know, it's one pass right up and go. You know, before the other team can get into their structure, they're already past it. They're past the other team's structure. So that's kind of the attitude I want to have in the mindset here. We're speaking to Cucks head coach Rick Tockett here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Rick, earlier I was talking to Frank Saravalli on this show. He says hi, by the way. Uh, he wanted me to ask you about the remarks made after the 6-1 loss in Seattle a short while ago, where, among other things, yeah. when you were assessing your team's play, you said it was soft. You said you don't like to call your team soft, but that was soft. Was there ever any consideration to either not say that or walk it back afterwards? Or were you going with the speak honestly and let the chips fall where they may philosophy? Well, I, I think you're, it's fine that, you know, I, I, my, I didn't call the team soft. That night I thought we played soft. And it, okay. I think uh, it is what it is. I mean, uh, you know, if a player comes to my office and we discuss things, I will say, you know, you, you didn't play a competitive game tonight. You know, like players want things. You know, uh, they want more ice time. They want certain things, which I want to give them, but there's also stuff that they got to give. You know, sure. we got to make sure we have a lot of givers and, 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 and just a bunch of guys I want to take all the time. And I, and the one thing I did say too, and I and I I understood the anxiety and what happened the last couple of weeks, and I think it hit the team. They, they just didn't have their legs. So sometimes you can win games when you don't have your legs or you don't have your game because you stay in your structure or you win a wall battle. Or, you know, you get out of a period that you shouldn't, you know, you should have probably been down a couple goals, but you get out of there even where maybe the power play wins it for you in the third. So I, I think you have to develop a mental toughness and a physical toughness. And, uh, you know, um, so I walk it back. I, I didn't call them soft. What I said is we just played soft that night. We didn't win some wild battles. And, um, you know, you want your team to be able to take that stuff. Um, you know, I don't like to publicly criticize my team um at all and individuals because uh, i think it's important that you have a developed relationship with your players and they know where they stand um and that's kind of my goal here 
Uh, you mentioned another thing after that Seattle game was that um, before you took the job, you had been told that it was a team or a group that had issues putting together consecutive uh, predictable performances, I think was the term, or predict- predictable efforts, where it was that second effort. Again, you mentioned on the second of a back-to-back, they're tired, they lose 6-1. Um, based on what you knew of the team when you were at TNT and prior to taking the job, now that you're in the job and you've been there for a few weeks, how have expectations met reality? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, for me, like coming in um, and with with Footy and, and Sergey, like we're in the evaluation pro, uh, process right now, mm-hmm. so we're like kind of seeing what we have, what we're working with, you know, um, and then obviously bring your philosophies, but also giving the players a voice too. You know, maybe there's some some really good stuff that some of the players have for you, some intel where you know that'll help you coach these guys. So that's kind of the whole kind of the mix of it all, right, is, is to come here, try to have a partnership with the players, understand where they're coming from, um, understanding, you know, them understanding your philosophy, your mindset, and then applying it every day. You know, every day you come to the rink. You know, that's the goal. You know, uh, whatever happened yesterday, you know, is in the past. The, the one thing of the Seattle game I learned is the next day, you know, we had the day off and we came in. Guys were focused for that game. I, 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 it, it was really um, enjoyable that morning where guys brought the energy. Even when we had that morning skate, we had a really good morning skate. So they had the ability to let it go and, 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 and you know, create that energy for the next game. That's, the, that's hard to, to, to play the right way every game is hard um, yeah. because everybody would do it. So I guess you know, that's the big thing. If you have a good game, which is great, you want to enjoy it, but you got to get back to reality quickly and back to earth for the next practice and you know, be more of an even keel team. Oh, Rick, I have about a million more things I'd love to ask you, but we're out of time and I know you got to get going. So one, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this this morning. This was great. And two, hopefully we can do this again uh, further on down the road. It was great talking to you. Yeah, no, great questions. I always enjoy interviews with uh, with well-thought-out questions. I appreciate that. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate that. That's Canucks head coach Rick Tockett here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. This is the best of Halford & Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.